welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And today we are finally on the banks of the Red, or Reed, more appropriately, Sea. And we will get to discuss all these wonderful, wonderful things about the spiritual life and pillars of fire and pillars of cloud. So there's just a little preview for you all. Uh, Daniel, I'm super excited. Super excited. And actually, we get to do this for two weeks because uh, uh, chapter 14 is the prose version of the story of the parting of the sea. And uh, chapter 15 is the song version, the poem. Uh, so we're hopefully going to have a, a special Jewish liturgical singer, a cantor, uh, on next week to sing us some of the song at the sea. Yes, although it won't be next week because both you and I will be traveling. So it'll be the first week of January. The first week of January, yes. Right. All right. Well, let's, but, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's not get too excited about the future. Let's live in the now and jump into, <laughs> uh, this fantastic, uh, chapter of this amazing book. Uh, should I start reading or should you? Go for it. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi <laughs> Last Last week I got complimented on my, my Hebrew. This week I'm going to totally whiff it. Uh, to camp in front of Pi Hachiroth. How's that? No, that was terrible. Yeah, the Hebrew is Pi Hachirot. Pi Hachirot. There we go. Well done. Thank you. Between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephan, you shall camp opposite it by the sea. So where is this place? Where are we now? That is a giant question, in part because no one knows where the Reed Sea truly was. Yes, no one knows where the Reed Sea is, and this is the first time we've heard of this town, Pi Hachirot. Um, or which is actually it. dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> So this is one of those places that Rashi is really helpful. Um, yeah. And whenever I'm asked, uh, what does Judaism say about such and such a verse? The answer is, well, let me check Rashi first. Oh. Uh, so Rashi looks at this and he actually says that this is one of the uh, classic slave cities. Uh, this is the city of Pitom. That uh, was built by the Israelites. You can find this in Exodus 1.11 all the way back from our very first week of recording. So the slaves have returned to their place of enslavement, essentially. They have returned to their place of enslavement. And actually, Rashi explains uh, the change in the name of the city uh, by connecting it to B'nai Chorin, which means free people uh, or the children of free people. Uh, So the city itself has a different name now that its occupants are not slaves. Well, that is that is fascinating. Uh, so the landscape is being transformed by their ontological state of freedom. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which is actually a really strong way to begin this chapter that is all about uh, a sea being divided and the landscape being transformed. Yeah. Yeah. And dear listeners, it is going to get seriously cosmic in a minute or two. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Should I go on? Please. Okay. Pharaoh will save the Israelites. They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. It will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. 
So I, you know, I'd never noticed this before, and it's one of the beauties of uh, this slow read. But there is this theme over and over again in this chapter of opening and closing. Hmm. Right? Uh, the wilderness has closed in on them. Uh, yeah. The sea will close in on them. The sea will open. It will part. You know, it's interesting. Yes, and uh, there. So this wandering aimlessly part seems to invite the enemy to attack again. Uh, but there also seems to be some purpose or advantage to it, or maybe I'm just thinking ahead. You know, I, I think we get used to the idea that this is a narrative that has in it inevitable direction, that this is pointing to Sinai and then pointing to being a free people on their own land. Right. Uh, but from the perspective of this moment, where are they supposed to go? Yeah. Right. They, they haven't been told that they're returning to a land that their ancestors lived in 400 years ago. Uh, right. They just know that they're, they're escaping. Wandering. Yeah. They're escaping uh, wherever they can get to, uh, with, without real food, right. That's the whole idea of the, the unleavened breads and, uh, uh, without shelter and without all of this, which explains why, uh, uh, over and over again, the theme of the Israelites is can't we go back? Right. Right. So really the theme at right now in some ways is, killed the past. The past must end. So the, the past city gets renamed uh, in Piharatot. Harot. Yes. But that city gets remain, renamed. The past is there. And uh, I really, I want to create a blooper rule here, uh, blooper reel here, uh, just of all of the ways you've said that city so far. Yeah, that would be good. That would be good. <laughs> and that when I drop my rap album, uh, I'll sample that. I um, like the idea. There we go. Um, so kill the past. Uh, nice little theme for this, uh, our last time recording in December, because it is also the theme of The Last Jedi. Dun dun dun! Uh, uh, great movie. Yeah, I really, I really liked it too. As did I. Um, yep. Okay. So, but let's let's move on with the Exodus instead. Um, so we're on. It's different five. podcast. If you want to hear us talk about Star Wars, <laughs> <laughs> that would be uh, uh, to a geek priest and a geek rabbi <laughs> explore pop culture. I don't know what we would call that. But. So actually, maybe it's not a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> really? Maybe not. Uh, okay. Chapter five. Uh, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed toward the people and they said what have we done letting israel leave our service so he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him he took 600 picked chariots and all the other chariots of egypt with officers over all of them interesting in the week that uh, uh the uh tax cut is passed or the tax bill is passed that we get here a uh, uh an economic argument right why is it that they're regretting letting the Israelites go? Mm -hmm. Because their economic system's in danger. It's been run on the exploitation of this people. Right. But also at this point, their economic system is in tatters because of the plagues. So uh, they've lost their ability to farm, create harvests, have food. Uh, at this point, you kind of would have to wonder even if they had the slaves, what on earth would the slaves be doing? What would they do? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, there, there's there's no fertility left in this land. There's nothing to harvest. Um, so in some ways, 
I mean, maybe we can read it as a statement about uh, not being able to adjust to the present circumstances uh, and, and just assuming that the economic system of the past can be returned to. Huh. Huh. Uh, okay. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out boldly. I think this is our last hardening. I believe so. Yeah, well, yeah, Pharaoh is about to leave our narrative, uh, except as somebody who's referred back to. Yes. Yes, his story is about to end. So in the miniseries, if you were the actor playing Pharaoh and you got this script, you'd be kind of disappointed. <laughs> yeah, well, you'll still be available for the flashbacks. <laughs> yeah, you, you would definitely be available. And then you'd be hoping for a spinoff series. Uh, <laughs> okay, so the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his chariot drivers and his army. They overtook them camped by the sea by Pi-Haherot. Well done. In front of Baal Safan. Okay, you read now. Uh, so we've got this overwhelming power, right? I mean, I think that's one of the dynamics to keep in mind here is we've got a group of refugees uh, with only the things they can carry who are blocked in by the sea, uh, in who, who have gone and taken refuge in their old slave town because they don't know where else to go. Uh, and you've got this mighty and well-armed Egyptian army closing in on them. Yeah. So as Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites caught sight of the Egyptians advancing upon them. Greatly frightened, the Israelites cried out to Adonai, and they said to Moses, Was it for want of graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us taking us out of Egypt? Right? What a great <laughs> complaining line. Right, right. Uh, Is this the first true complaint of the wilderness sojourn? Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe though a legitimate critique you'd have to say, right? Um, it's a, it's a pretty good line though. Yep. Uh, was it for want of graves? <laughs> uh, is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt saying, let us be, and we will serve the Egyptians for it is better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. Uh, there's actually a tradition that says eight out of 10 Jews turned back and stayed in Egypt. Mm. Um, but Moses said to the people, have no fear, stand by and witness the deliverance with which Adonai will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Adonai will battle for you. You hold your peace. Then Adonai said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. Uh, all uh, right, let's stop there. Let's do a little midrash. Yes. yes. Uh, so first of all, you got to love the... Uh, uh, juxtaposition here that the people cry out and complain to Moses who tells them to stop complaining. And Moses's initial response is to cry out and complain to God who tells him <laughs> stop complaining. Um, uh, yeah. We're always, we're always passing the complaints up the chain. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, hard to be the Bishop. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hard to be even harder to be God really. <laughs> <laughs> So. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, we have this. We have this midrash from uh, Mechilta, right? Mechilta. Okay, explain what Mechilta is. Just another collection of midrash. Okay. Uh, so these midrashim, right? They're they're at some level they are folklore, and before they are all sort of written down together. They're floating out there in all sorts of different sources and come from different rabbis and different people and different traditions and schools. Uh, and eventually, uh, generally in the first millennium, 
uh, of uh, first millennia of uh, the common era, uh, these get written down and put into uh, sort of big collections of them. And actually there are a few that, you know, have been discovered in the last 150 years in places like the Cairo Geniza and then become a part of the Midrashic tradition. So like the Babylonian Talmud is a, is one of those first century collections. So the Talmud is not a collection of Midrash, though there are lots of things that look like Midrash in the Talmud. Okay. Uh, The Talmud actually has the status in Judaism uh, really it's in some ways is considered more significant than the Bible itself. Right. Um, and I think it's comparable to the role that the new Testament plays in the Christian world. So, okay. So I'm just trying to understand, uh, from my own context. So, uh, the Talmud would be like a a biblical commentary, except way more authoritative than any biblical commentary that I've not, ever heard of. So it's not a biblical commentary, uh, though frequently uh, that's what it looks like. Uh, the Talmud understands itself, and certainly modern Judaism understands the Talmud as being Torah, is actually being Bible. That uh, at the moment of revelation at Mount Sinai, that the Torah, the five books of Moses are given. Uh, but that also there is an oral tradition that is given as well, an oral Torah that is passed uh, from teacher to student, teacher to student, and eventually that is written down, and that's what the Talmud is. Okay. So the so, Talmud also is said to come from Sinai. Okay. So the Talmud contains some Midrash, but is not principally Midrash. Correct. Um, and you have these other collections that are just principally Midrash. That is Exactly. So little narratives yeah, yeah, yeah. that fill in the, the blanks as we go along. I, I quote you all the time uh, that Midrash is rabbinic fan fiction. Okay, there we go. I, I love it. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. So here we here we have one uh, that applies to this verse 15. God said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Speak to the children of Israel that they should go forward. As they stood at the shore of the sea, the people of Israel split into four factions. So I love this, right? Because I, I think in our head we sort of – Imagine them as one big group. Uh, but of course, if it, in any real situation, you would have all sorts of people with different solutions and you would see immediately that the infighting would explode with this kind of danger and pressure. Yeah. Yeah. It would get, so it gets kind of messy. Four, actually four is a, a fairly limited number of factions, really. Yeah. Um, okay. One faction said, let us cast ourselves into the sea. A sec- second faction said, let us return to Egypt. A third said, let us wage war against the Egyptians. A fourth said, let us cry out to God. Uh, thus Moses said to the people, fear not, stand by and see the salvation of God, which God will show you today. For as you have seen Egypt this day, you shall not see them again anymore forever. God shall fight for you and you shall be silent. So kind of like that. The, the Midrash here is taking this idea that uh, uh, God tells Moses to speak to the children of Israel. So the question is, what does Moses actually say to each of the groups? And the Midrash imagines that being divided up. So here's, yep. uh, here's the finale of it. To those who said, let us cast ourselves into the sea, Moses said, fear not, stand by and see the salvation of God. To those who said, let us return to Egypt, Moses said, as you have seen Egypt this day, you shall not see them again anymore forever. To those who said, let us wage war against them, Moses said, God shall fight for you. And to those who said, let us cry out to God, Moses said, 
and you shall be silent. So it's taking verses 13 and 14 and uh, saying that each of these statements, that, the statement that Moses makes is responding to one of these factions in each of its clauses from those verses. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But actually the Midrash that I love on this, uh, uh, also on verse 15, says, why do you cry out to me? And God says to Moses, Moses, my children are in dire straits. The sea's closing in on them and the enemy pursues. And you sit here and you pray at length. Why are you crying out to me? There are times that call for lengthy prayers and times when one must pray briefly. Okay. So the first Midrash we looked at uh, has, has uh, Moses being very considered. And this is a moment where we are going to uh, explicate what leadership looks like, right? Because part of Exodus is a question of what is the nature of leadership. And that first Midrash says the nature of good leadership is not to pay too much attention to the polls. Right, you have people complaining on all these sides, and instead of giving in to any one faction, Moses answers each faction in turn, uh-huh. and then uh, goes forward with a with a different plan. Um, but the the second midrash we looked at, Rashi, uh, says sometimes you don't even sh- you shouldn't even bother to to answer factions in turn. Sometimes, in fact, you just should get going, do the business, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I always read the second one also as sort of uh, a rejection of ascetic piety, Ooh. right? The, the inclination to withdraw into prayer at this moment. And Moses, uh, that's his inclination here, at least how the rabbis imagine it. And God looks over at Moses and says, seriously, dude, get with the program. Let's get to work. Okay, that, let's put a pin in that because uh, as we get to the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, um, that question of ascetic piety comes up for me in a way that'll be really interesting to to get into. Okay. All right. We will return. Okay. Do you want to keep reading like uh, verse 16, right? Verse 16. Uh, and you lift up your rod and hold out your arm over the sea and split it so that the Israelites may march into the sea on dry ground. I always think this is interesting too, that God is having Moses do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. It's almost there to reassure the Israelites, right? They can see the leadership in front of them. Right. Um, and I will stiffen the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his warriors, his chariots and his horsemen. Let the Egyptians know that I am Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Uh, you know, it's interesting, this God that is imagined here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's emerged from our conversations is, uh, learning to think of this as less a statement about who God is and more a statement of how these ancient Israelites imagined their relationship with God, right? They, they imagine a vengeful God here yeah, and a God who does things to gain glory. Um, but it's the imagination of an oppressed people. Right. So this is a warrior God. Uh, coming forward again. Uh, yeah. And I think we can be understanding uh, of the idea of a warrior God or the imaginings of a warrior God from an oppressed people. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the problem becomes when you've still got your warrior God and you've got power now. Right. Right. Uh, right. But I mean, I, you know, over time, I think I 
would like a world where we don't need warrior gods <laughs> at all. I'm with uh, you. But it, it does remind me, I, I once had uh, up at Kenyon, there is a poli-sci professor, who, a Jewish poli-sci professor, and he and I had lunch once, and I said kind of blindly, I'm a pacifist, and he said, then you're an idiot, basically. <laughs> and, um, and I've always thought of that. I mean, I think I've maintained that I would ideally like a world where um, kind of self-sacrificial love was the norm, and if people were acting evilly, the, the best choice was not to participate. But I certainly see where this professor was coming from, you know, in light of the Holocaust, in light of World War II, how can you be? If you see great evil being done... Don't you need to do something oh. to oppose it? Um, so I think that's where the warrior God comes in, right? If the warrior God is on the side of justice or if we, when we go to war, ask God to be on our side because we are certain that we are right. And there are some instances, rare though they may be, when we actually are right, uh, maybe that's acceptable. Hmm. Hmm. Complicated, though. Super complicated, particularly because America didn't enter the war because of the plight of the Jews, right? <laughs> like that would have made it a much less complicated story. Yeah, yeah, right. America uh, never bombs the lines that lead to Auschwitz, the, the train right. Uh, right, right. And, you know, and like Churchill firebombs Dresden and anyway, yep. a lot of horror on all sides. Yep. So... Okay, so so it's uh, we have a warrior god. We're not sure whether we think uh, such a uh, such a vision of God is is going to be all that good for humanity, at least in the present moment. I would say. So, returning to our text for a second, we've got yeah. a great midrash for nineteen twenty. Oh, so I love it. Yes, go. Uh, so, the angel of God who had been going ahead of the Israelite army, we're in verse nineteen, yep. now moved and followed behind them. And the pillar of cloud shifted from in front of them and took up a place behind them. Uh, and it came between the army of the Egyptians and the army of Israel. Thus, there was the cloud with the darkness and it cast a spell upon the night so that the one could not come near the other all through the night. Uh, so first of all, I love that this uh, pillar of uh, cloud and pillar of fire at night uh, it, it, it enters into the story as if we've known about it all along, but we've never actually heard about this before. Uh, no, we haven't. But, uh, okay, there are so many things to do with this. Let's do the the Midrash first, and then I want to go deeply into this. Okay. Uh, so the Midrash comes from Midrash Rabbah, the great collection of Midrash. Uh, mm -hmm. Great as in big. Uh which is the same reason, of course, we have books one kings and two kings. They would not fit on one scroll. Ah, there we go. Um, so it says, it came between the camp of e Egypt and the camp of Israel. That's the verse it's commenting on. Yep. It says, a shepherd was leading his sheep across a river when a wolf came to attack the sheep. What did the shepherd do? He took a large ram and threw it out to the wolf, saying to himself, let the wolf struggle with this till we cross the river, and then I will return and bring the ram back. So too, when Israel departed from Egypt, the angel, the angel uh, Shmuel, uh, who here is called Satan, Satan, uh, arose to accuse them, arguing before God, master of the universe, till now they've been worshiping idols, and now you divide the sea for them? What did God do in this moment when uh, the Satan uh, uh, was arguing against them? He delivered into his hands Job, 
one of the counselors of Pharaoh. So that God said, while he, the Satan, is busily occupied with Job, Israel will go through the sea. And afterwards, I will deliver Job. Oh, it's so good. Um, <laughs> so Job is one of those uh, books in what is what are called wisdom literature, the wisdom literature of the Bible. Um, that isn't really placed within the historical narrative. Uh, and so here we have it being placed there. And, and Job, who suffers everything, right? The, the great theme of Job is suffering and uh, the mind of God or the will of God, what, what we call in the theological biz, theodicy. Um, that's a great theme, and it's never really explained in the book of Job. It, you know, at the end of the book, Job, who has suffered the loss of his family, his own illness, uh, the loss of all his wealth, uh, demands that God come before him and explain. And God appears significantly, I think. Uh, it, doesn't God appear in a pillar of fire? I'm Suddenly, I can't quite remember. But God does appear, oh, in a whirlwind. Yes, God appears in a whirlwind, which is a little bit like a pillar of fire. And uh, basically says, Job, you are too small. Your understanding is too small to understand, to, to, to figure out why all this has happened. Um, in this long speech, you know, were you there when I created the Leviathan? Um, so God basically says human beings cannot understand our, their suffering because their consciousness, their imagination is too limited. And the answer to human suffering is simply uh, to profoundly trust in God. Um, and part of that trust is not just about God having some sort of plan. Uh, what it's really about is that God will appear to us when we need God to appear to us, that God will be with us, will be present to us in our suffering, and that that presence is a true answer to suffering rather than anything else. Oh, interesting. That's such a different understanding than Job I normally have. Really? Okay, tell me your understanding of Job. So to me, Job's always been a rejection of Deuteronomy, right? Deuteronomy uh, says that uh, we suffer when we don't keep the commandments and we are rewarded when we keep the commandments, that there's a rational, understandable uh, explanation for everything that happens to us. Okay. Uh, right. There are these lines in Deuteronomy to talk about, uh, you know, if you keep the commandments, the rain will come in its season and your children will flourish and so on and so forth. And if you break them, the opposite will happen. Uh, and Job says, you know what? We can't ever understand it. Bad things happen and good things happen and they don't seem to be related to anything. And that's the reality of life. Right. So for you, uh, Job is an answer to Deuteronomy in the way that Ecclesiastes is an answer to, say, Proverbs. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. Because one, I mean, this is the argument within wisdom literature, right? There's one side um, that is always claiming that all you need is righteousness and you'll get anything you want in the world, which also means that anyone who is suffering must not be righteous. Um, and in answer to that, you have um, Ecclesiastes and Job saying suffering has nothing to do with whether you're righteous or not. Suffering is just part of life. It's part of what happens. Yes. Yes. Okay. It's actually it's the, the line I am most jealous of from uh, Christian scriptures. Uh, I think it's Matthew uh, that the rain falls on the yep. just and the unjust. 
Yep, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. I love that line. It is a great line. Um, but but I I guess I read Job in both ways, right? I think Job is both an answer to uh, that that kind of righteousness narrative, and it's a statement about where God is within suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Now let me get to what I want to say about the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. And, yeah, please. And I'm super excited about this stuff, Daniel. So if I get carried away, I trust you to, to rein me in. Okay. Uh, like give me hard Hebrew words to pronounce to keep me humble. <laughs> um, but basically, uh, so in Christian mysticism, there's this idea that comes from St. Saint Tria, Saint Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross uh, that's called the Dark Night of the Soul. Um, Ooh, I like this already. Yeah. So, and the idea is that uh, periods of darkness is something that we all pass through. And we might think of that as a negative thing, uh, but truly it's not. It's darkness is really kind of a, a unknowing. So it's a place where all of the certainties that we think we've had about God, ourselves, world, life, uh, fall away. And we are left um, trying to discover new certainties, and hmm. and there and so it's very humbling because we realize how little we know. Uh, at the same time, um, it's it's necessary for the progress of the soul to draw closer to God, because as long as we are relying on our own. Um, wisdom and strength and understanding, uh, we cannot fully rely on God. Um, so, uh, Gerald May, who, um, is a wonderful writer about this in his book, the dark Knight of the soul, which is about Teresa and, and John of the cross, um, talks about it in this way. And, and if you don't mind, I'll just read a little bit. Yeah, please. Uh, okay. He says, if we are honest, I think we have to admit that we will likely try to sabotage any movement toward true freedom. If we really knew what we are called to relinquish on this journey, our defenses would never allow us to take the first step. Sometimes the only way we can enter the deeper dimensions of the journey is by being unable to see where we're going. John of the Cross's explanation of the of the obscurity goes further. He says that in worldly matters, it is good to have light. So we know where we go without stumbling, but in spiritual matters, it is precisely when we do think we know where to go, that we are most likely to stumble. Mm. Thus, John says, God darkens our awareness in order to keep us safe. When we cannot chart our own course, we become vulnerable to God's protection and the darkness becomes a guiding night, a night more kindly than the dawn. Um, so it's so, the idolatry of certainty. Did I understand that right? Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a good way to put it. Right, the idolatry of certainty or or deep self reliance, and you know I think this Exodus narrative is partly about that. Like they are, as you said, they haven't brought with them any food that is actually going to sustain them. Um, what what's going to happen more and more is they're going to have to rely more and more upon God, and it seems significant that it starts. Uh, with a, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, right? Like darkness and light are both part of this. Uh, and darkness is not like a uh, the dark side of the force kind of darkness. Darkness is the, the clarifying and purifying uh, 
acknowledgement that we do not know and cannot understand. Mm. Hmm. That's powerful. Yeah. Well, and you see how it plays back to Job, too. Yeah. Job cannot know, and he does not understand. This is what God says to him at the end. Hmm. Mm, That's beautiful. Yeah. So, in a way, I think this Midrash that we're looking at um, is basically saying, uh, you know, God is, is using... Job, that kind of admittance that we can't understand and do not know, to to confuse the powers of the world while we make our escape, um, which is kind of beautiful, right? Gorgeous. <laughs> anyway, okay, there. So so ends my sermon. Uh, okay. But I really like it. I think it's really important. Yeah. And, uh, um, and I think it's. I don't know. Like, do Jews talk about the the spirituality of certain scriptures? Is this part of your tradition? I. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I guess I mean, um, is there a way of reading scripture where it is an allegory for the for the soul's relationship with God? Sure. Um, though, usually, actually, it ends up being a relationship between. Israel or, or an allegory for Israel's relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're much less individualistic. Okay. Uh, and the whole notion is that we have a relationship to the divine as a people uh, and not as individual human beings. So it's a collective uh, understanding and maybe a collective darkness too. Exactly. Exactly. And redemption is understood totally in collective terms, uh-huh. uh, not in individual terms. Right. Um, yeah, that's a real, that's a pretty stark difference. And I, I wonder where like the Christian emphasis on individuality comes from. I mean, we, like, it's easy to like point to the evangelicals and their, you know, my own personal relationship with Jesus Christ rhetoric. Um, but I think it, it goes back much, much further than that. I think it's kind of part of the heart of Christianity is this idea that this is an, an individual journey of, uh, of death and resurrection. Yeah. Well, certainly any, any theology that's in any way dependent on an idea of sort of salvation through faith, uh, mm-hmm. no matter how metaphorical, I think you're dealing with an individual relationship with God as opposed to a collective. Yeah. Yeah. So it goes all the way back to, to St. Paul at the very least. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Okay, well, uh, but that it might take a lot of work to untangle where it comes from. But that's a, so that's a very real difference. Um, so here we have then uh, the the angel um, standing between the people and their pursuers, the Egyptians, and we've found our way to verse twenty one. Should we go on, please? Okay. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So, first of all, I, I love this slow read because somehow I have missed this, right? I've forgotten this, right? I think the image I've always had is that the sea divides instantly. Right. And this is a process that takes all night. Yep. <laughs> the wind is blowing. The wind is blowing harder and harder and harder. The sea begins to go out, begins to create these walls. Uh, but it's not an instant. Yeah. Uh, but we do get some uh, Midrashic imaginings of this as instantaneous, uh, including, I love this one. There's a Midrash from Mechilta that says that it's not just 
this sea that parted, but that everywhere in the entire world experienced a moment of perfection, a moment of redemption and the waters in everything parted. So whether you're talking about lakes or oceans or jars or cups or bowls, the waters everywhere were divided. You do you remember listeners when I told you this was going to get cosmic? Exactly. <laughs> this is that moment. Um, uh, and uh now the other the other midrash that I love here is that says this this actually comes from the Talmud that uh the waters themselves weren't dividing and the Egyptians are closing in and it is the end of their existence and it is only when a child Nachshon ben Aminadav uh, enters into the ocean all the way up to his nose that the ocean itself begins to part, that it is only this sort of action of, uh, human initiative. And at the same time, deep faith, uh, that causes the sea to divide the sea to part. Right. Right. So action again, um, Stop! Stop praying so long. Just get to it. <laughs> Jump into the sea. Good nachshon. Right, and then there's this beautiful image that says, "After the seas have parted, uh, the Israelite women were holding their children uh, above their heads, sort of on their on their shoulders, if you imagine. And the kids are reaching out, and held within the walls of the ocean on either side are pomegranates and apples that the kids are just plucking out from the walls of the sea and eating. Right. Um, I don't I know what to like, make of that other than I love I think it's beautiful. Uh yeah, I mean it reminds me there was there was a midrash uh all the way back also from the Babylonian Talmud um before the the um right at the beginning of Exodus where Pharaoh was ordering the children to be killed that was about the mothers going out into the orchards and giving birth beneath apple trees and, and then the ground swallowing up their children so that the, oh, yeah. the Egyptians with their knives couldn't come and kill them. I forgot so about them. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there we go. So these children who um, have somehow been spared from death up until this point by the earth and the sea and by the mm-hmm. fruits uh, are are still being sustained by those same things. And I think at the end of that midrash, it says even that they were the the generation who crossed the Red Sea. Hmm. So, so maybe that's why it's there. Maybe it's simply like a callback, closing the circle. Yeah, I like that. Closing the circle. Yeah, here's the generation doing what what it said they would do. Uh, so, verse twenty two. Yeah. You go for it. And the Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians came in pursuit after them into the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down upon the Egyptian army from a pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He locked the wheels of their chariots so that they moved forward with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Okay, so there's, oh, go ahead. there's just a small midrash here. Um, the pillar of cloud descends and makes the earth like mud, and the pillar of fire boils it. Yeah, I love this image, right? <laughs> like that it's leaving these indelible marks on the earth wherever it goes. Right, right. Well, you and I, uh, before we started recording, we're talking about uh, 
a rock bands that we've played guitar in in the exactly. past. Exactly. And I was once with a group of friends who jokingly created a rock band called Hot Drifting Mud. I think it was our, our play on uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Hot Drifting <laughs> Mud. Very good. But here we are. Uh, Hot Drifting Mud. Um, destroying right, I, the Egyptians. I actually think there is almost a slapstick comedy uh, mm-hmm. piece that's occurring here. Uh, the Midrash actually ends up making it um, much more serious. But I think in the Torah itself here, we've got this element of slapstick that's happening. Uh-huh. Uh, so then in 26, then the Lord said to Moses, hold out uh, your arm over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians and upon the chariots and upon their horsemen. And so Moses held out his arms over the sea and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal state. Uh, there's an interesting piece here, right? Night and day. Um, it's all happening with the natural world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Egyptians fled at its approach, but the Lord hurled the Egyptians into the sea, stirred them up into the sea. Uh, the waters turned back and covered the chariots and the horsemen and Pharaoh's entire army that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. So there's a, a number of Midrashim that deal with this, but I wanted to uh, bring two of them. Uh, the first also comes from Mechilta, and it's dealing with this question from verse 27, and the Lord stirred them up. And the Midrash says, as a person stirs a pot of food and turns what is on the top to the bottom and what is on the bottom to the top, so are the Egyptians bobbing up and down, being smashed in the sea, and the Holy One, blessed be God, kept them alive to bear their tortures. Oof. Right? This is brutal. Yeah. Um, this is imagining a God who is not just killing the Egyptians, but making it slow and painful. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, clearly this is the imaginations of an oppressed people about vengeance upon their oppressors, but still, right. This is brutal. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't know what to say about it except to be struck by the brutality. I mean, I, to me, what it evokes are images of hell. Um, you know, and I, uh, one of the great, uh, classics of, uh, of European literature is of course, you know, Dante's, uh, um, Inferno. And in that book, which is a beautiful book, I mean, don't get me wrong, but what it is is him touring through hell and imagining all of his like political enemies or anyone who he has never liked suffering the horrors of hell because of you know their character flaws or sins uh so right there in the divine comedy uh there is this kind of element of whoever i think is bad is going to end up suffering and i know exactly why they're bad yeah um And, you know, sometimes I think of that in terms of our current time, and there are people who I would very much like to imagine, you know, getting their their just recompense in this uh, allegorical way. Uh, But I know that that is not a good part of me that wants to do that or wants to see that. Yeah. 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 So actually, there's a there's another midrash to bring here, too. And this is you know, this is what I love about uh sort of the classic Jewish approach to text study that it's not trying to be one voice, right? That there's very much a, uh, multiplicity of voices that come together and often are conflicting with each other. Um, 
So this is one of my very favorite Midrashim, uh, talking about the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the hosts of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. And this Midrash comes from the Talmud, says uh, that in that hour, the ministering angels on high started singing songs of praise before God, right? They're celebrating. Uh, just mm-hmm. as the Jews celebrate, right? We get the song at the sea in the next chapter, uh, which is the celebration. Uh, right. And the angels start to sing and God looks over at them and rebukes them saying, my handiwork is drowning in the sea and you dare to sing before me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's God who's doing this, right? God is the one who is drowning them. And yet this Midrash seems to be saying there are things that we have to do that we still shouldn't be proud of. It does. And there's a, a huge loss in that. Um, this thing that God made, these Egyptians who God made and loved are now dying at the hand of God. I mean, it's tragic. Tragic. Um, I, I mean, I guess one way to kind of think through the, the theodicy of it, the question of evil is uh, they didn't have to follow the Israelites into the sea, right? Like you can imagine a loving God being like, I need to protect the Israelites. I have a means to protect them, but I sure hope these Egyptians won't be dumb enough <laughs> to go into that sea. Yeah. That, that pillar of cloud yeah, could have just stayed there. there. Right. 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 But they, they follow regardless. Okay. They follow regardless. Yeah. Well. So shall we end our chapter? Yeah. Yeah. Thus the Lord saved Israel from that, uh, that day from the Egyptians And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in the Lord's servant, Moses. Okay. Um, So one last note here, and it's it's the the grammar of this word believe in or had faith. uh, That in Hebrew, first of all, faith is a verb. Mm. Um, it's not uh, a state of being, mm-hmm. uh, and it is never faith that it is always faith in, uh, it's the notion of where do you place your trust rather than certainty in certain ideas. So there, right. there's no such thing, for instance, as a statement of faith for Jews. Uh, lots yeah. of people have tried to create one and failed spectacularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's sort of a visceral idea that you shouldn't believe that anything. You should only place your trust in those who are worth placing your trust in, and the facts will follow. That is really good. That, um, that reminds, so Marcus Borg, uh, wrote this kind of famous book over 20 years ago, uh, the heart of Christianity, where he talks about the meaning of belief or the word itself. He kind of gets into the etymology of the, of the word. Um, but he says kind of originally it meant to give your heart to something so that when you say, I believe in God, for instance, you might as well just say, I give my heart to God. Hmm. And it, that seems to kind of follow along yeah. right? to say, um, this is not a, you know, we don't need to make statements, uh, about absolute certainties. We just need to choose the right relationships. Mm. Oh, I love how you said that. Yeah. We don't need statements of absolute certainty. We just have to choose the right relationships. Mm-hmm. 
um, beautiful. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good place to, to end. Uh, so the Israelites have chosen the right relationship, although they will test that relationship again and again and again in the coming chapters. Uh, so next week we will get a similar story or in two weeks we'll get a similar story, but, uh, we'll be in poetry. We'll be in song form. Uh, so we will have an opportunity to talk about how this song changed spirituality. How does music change spirituality and how does poetry? That will be beautiful, and hopefully we'll have a canter. But but even if we can't get a canter to join us, maybe we can find um, like passages of a canter singing it from some recorded source and use those. We'll get a canter. Uh, kind of have no fear. Okay. We'll we'll find someone. Okay. All right, uh, you heard that here, listeners. That is a promise from the rabbi himself. <laughs> Uh, so, um, okay. Well, uh, Hanukkah is, is today the last day today? Oh, oh. my dogs are celebrating the end of Hanukkah. Evidently. Yeah. The, the uh, Hanukkah retriever has arrived. Yes. Today's the last uh, day of Hanukkah. Okay. Wednesday, December 20th, 2017. And of course, uh, Christmas is five days from now. So dear listeners, um, have a lovely holiday period, however you interpret that yes. statement. <laughs> uh, Merry Christmas to everyone. Oh, yes. And Happy Hanukkah, even though I'm just sneaking in. Hours day. left. Hours, Hours left. left. You get crazy. Yes. Um, yeah. I should say, before we go, uh, that Lost is in the Wilderness is brought to you by the Diocese of Southern Ohio and Christ Church Cathedral. Uh and as part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, you can find me at prayerbookart.com. Daniel, any place you want to? I'm actually going to give a pitch here to a Jewish musician whose song I've had stuck in my head for a week now. Uh, so go onto YouTube and type in Joey Weisenberg by the Waters of Babylon. Uh, hopefully it'll stick in your head like it has in mine. Cool. Is it also on Spotify or is YouTube our only choice? Uh, so I think you can find it on Spotify, but there's a beautiful live version on YouTube. Uh, yeah. Incredible. Joey Weisenberg by the waters of Babylon. Sweet. Okay. Well, thank you so much. All right. Uh, talk to you soon. Talk to you soon.